When you enter into that liminal space, right? When you enter into that emergency, when somebody's anesthetized and you're putting a breathing tube, the only thing you have there is what you've trained ahead of time. So it's up to you to build that team ahead of time when you're off pressure, when you're off the X, so that it's able to perform under pressure. One of the things that involves is making sure that people feel listened to and able to communicate to each other in a free and open way. So when I'm leading a team, I always want everybody else who's around me to be asking questions about things that they don't understand. Dr. Dan Dworkis is the Chief Medical Officer at the Mission Critical Team Institute, a board-certified emergency physician and an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of University of Southern California. He performed his emergency medicine residency at Harvard Medical School and holds an MD and PhD in molecular medicine from the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Dworkis is the founder of the Emergency Mind Project and the author of The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. We hope you enjoy this episode and welcome to Leading the Rounds. Welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. We're super excited about this episode. We were able to connect with Dr. Dorcas on social media and really excited about his project, The Emergency Mind, and how we can relate it to medicine and leadership. Dr. Dorcas, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. Honored to, honored to be joining you all. Awesome. So we wanted to start off the conversation just asking you, you've built this, this idea of the emergency mind and you have a podcast and you've written a book now. What inspired you and why did you feel the need to create this project? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the whole idea behind the emergency mind project is to think about performing and really delivering knowledge under pressure as its own skill, separate from the knowledge that you're trying to obtain. It's its, its own skill. And it's really orthogonal to a lot of the way that we learn in medicine. Uh, and mostly this whole project derived from me not really knowing how to apply my own knowledge under pressure at the level that I wanted it to, right? So I'm an emergency medicine attending. Uh, and when I was coming up, when I was finishing medical school and starting out as a resident, there would be so many times when I would get in the situation where I, I knew, I knew, I knew what the answer was, right? Or I knew at least in theory, I'd studied it. I understood how to do it at least conceptually, but then you put me in front of a sick and crashing patient and there was just this gap. Right. There was a, how do I get this knowledge from my brain out to the patient where I need it to be? Um, and the, it, I'm, I'm sure you know what that feels like. I'm sure most of the people know listening to this podcast know what that feels like. That's not a unique situation. But what do you do about that? Right. So the first couple of times, the answer is you get really frustrated at yourself and you're really upset and you're sort of like, you know, what the hell? Like, why am I doing this? And then over time, I started asking around and asking people, well, what? What is the answer to this? How do we perform under pressure? Um, and the um, continuation of that line of questioning about how to how to individuals, teams, and organizations truly like thrive under pressure and perform in emergencies is is what the Emergency Mind Project is all about. You may have touched on it a bit there, but do you think some people naturally have the ability to perform under pressure, which is why they're drawn to specialties like emergency medicine? Or do you think that this is more of an adaptable skill that can be learned if you're someone who's actually drawn to that specialty? I think applying knowledge under pressure is a skill, period, right? I think that like all skills, some people have certain head starts or certain predilections towards one thing or another, but nobody uh, you know, is born an emergency medicine doctor. Nobody's born a trauma surgeon. 
right? You have to be built into one and you have to build yourself into one. And that sort of implies that a lot of these things are things that we can train and grow into. And I, I really think that's the truth. And um, in, in my other sort of life, I'm the chief medical officer of the Mission Critical Team Institute, uh, which is a large scale think tank that works with folks like the special forces and NASA flight control and folks like that. And one thing that links all of the different organizations that we work with in that in those sets of communities uh, is the idea that none of the people in those roles are born into those roles. You have to make them, right? Like we have to make yourself into a NASA flight controller or a special forces operator or a trauma surgeon, whatever it is. Um, I think that's a really hopeful message, right? If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if that's me, like it's not you right now, maybe, right? But you can grow into that space. So I want to get into how we can do this in just a minute. But first of all, for you, what do you think are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned growing in your ability to be able to manage stressful situations and working in high stress environments? Yeah. So when I first started, um, when I first started thinking about this, and even until I got sort of partway into building the Emergency Mind Project, my focus was entirely on the idea of performance during a shift. Right. And so the model I would use is intubating. And specifically to, to drill down into it even more, the question that really kept me like hyper focused was what happens when you're intubating somebody and you miss the first time? Right. Because that's the moment that is like the ultimate pressure. You've already delivered, you know, anesthetics, you've already delivered uh, paralytics, and they are not breathing on their own. And it's up to you to get yourself out of that situation. It has what we call liminality, right? Like you enter into this world, and the only way out is through. So, how do you recover from the first miss and make the second attempt? And th there's versions of this problem set across all different types of medicine, right? Like you're putting a line in and somebody with a really high INR and they're bleeding and you're, you're sort of partway through and you got to finish this thing, or there's a million examples from surgery as well. But, but that hyper-focused thing is what I would think about. How do I personally perform better in that exact second? And I think that the biggest lesson that I learned from uh, working with folks from, from the emergency medicine world and, and far beyond is that that was overly narrow of a focus. And really, when I zoom out, when I look at how all sorts of teams perform under pressure, that it's a much broader universe around that. So specifically, we tend to use this loop in the Emergency Mind Project, which is prepare, perform, recover, evolve. Right. And that really, per, like when I started, I was only focused on performance, but it's so much bigger than that. It's what do I do in the days before I have to do a thing? What do I do in the moments before I have to do a thing? Then, of course, how do I do the thing? But then, how do I recover from that thing and set myself up for the next day or the next shift or the next whatever it is? How do I sleep and eat and prepare to really get back to what I'm doing? And then, how do I learn? How do I evolve and really grow myself into this, into this next thing I want to be? Um, we also tend to look at it in, uh, so that's sort of like, you know, mental model one is like prepare, perform, recover, evolve this cycle. The second mental model we use is this thing that's called the, um, we sort of called the ITSO matrix, the ITSO matrix. And it's imagine like a three by two table, right? So the rows are the different types of things and the columns are the time points. So rows, you have individual team and then structural or organizational, and then the columns are on X or off X, right? So on the thing you're doing or off the thing you're doing. Again, this is really just a big reminder to like zoom out and really see the broader space of what you're doing, that it's not just about that one moment. It's about everything you do before that, after that, and getting ready for it. So let's use that specific example then and go through that matrix. So totally. prepare, perform, recover, evolve. Mm -hmm. So let's take somebody who's uh, just jumping into residency or training and, and they're tasked with intubating a patient in the emergency department. 
So how would they go through that arc to improve their performance? Yeah. So uh, imagine that we're going to call that, that moment in time when they're intubating somebody day one, right? And, and this is something we work on in the, in the uh, Mission Critical Team Institute as well. We call this the day one project, right? So what do you do when it's the first day that it's you holding the thing as opposed to somebody else holding the thing, right? So uh, the answer to part of this is that your loop, your prepare, perform, recover, evolve loop starts before day one. Right? It's not just about what you do at that moment. It's how you set yourself up for it. So if we do our jobs well as attendings and teachers and residency programs and training, we've prepared you enormously for that moment, right? And even through medical school. And part of what we've done is talk to you about the idea that pressure is real, that you're going to feel pressure. And we've given you some tools to understand how you're going to feel in that moment. We've also set you up to succeed by running you through simulations of a thing, right? We've had you intubate mannequins. We've had you intubate uh, really, really um, lifelike mannequins if we can get them, right? Sometimes even in, in a cadaver lab or something like that. Um, and at the very least, you've held the thing in your hand before and you know what it feels like, right? You don't want to fail because you've just never opened the kit before. That's like a really unnecessary way to fail. And uh, I'm smiling about this because there are definitely times when you open a kit and you're like, what the hell? Like, this is not what I was expecting. You can't eliminate everything, but you can do your best to create an environment that allows you to set yourself up for success. So hopefully we've prepared both in the skill itself through a graduated pressure environment, and then in your sort of internal environment by helping you understand, well, what's it going to feel like when I'm under pressure and what am I going to do about it? Okay. Then we get to the perform aspect, right? Which is, we're going to talk you through it. We're going to remind you uh, to breathe. We're going to remind you to slow yourself down. And hopefully we will have helped you develop some tools to actually execute on that. We can, that's like a whole rabbit hole that we can drill into if you want to. Um, and one of the biggest things we're going to do is we're going to go to recover afterwards, right? And sort of no matter what happened, did you succeed or fail at putting the tube in? Uh, we're going to help you learn from that experience. And that's sort of the recover evolve piece of it. So um, one of the things we're going to do is give you space, let you walk away from the situation for a second afterwards, let you cool down and let you wash out all of those stressful chemicals, which is not necessarily a technical medical term for it, but the stressful chemicals that you're feeling uh, and get some space away from the action so that you can really cool off a bit. Then we're going to run you through the evolve piece. We're going to do an after action review, a hot wash, and we're going to take you through some ideas about, well, what was under your control and what can you do better next time? And really set yourself up, not just for that day, but for the next day that you're going to intubate. Awesome. I love that framework. And it's a good way to go through not only in the moment, but also before and after as well. You mentioned the perform piece and I, and I would love to talk about it more. Um, one of the things that I've worked on myself and I talked to one of the attendings I was working with recently is breathing techniques. And he, he was a big fan of box breathing. The one I have been most familiar with has been the physiologic sigh, where it's a double inhale with a long exhale. Other than those two or those two, the main ones you teach, what else can somebody do in the moment? when they're feeling that stress and maybe they missed that first attempt to kind of refocus and recenter and still perform. So I think it's worth asking, how did we get to those two things as what we do? Right. Cause I think those are two really pillar techniques. And that's certainly where I would start to is box breathing and a physiologic sigh. Um, but what do we know about those? Well, we know that we're all wired in fairly similar ways. Like our brains and our bodies are structurally similar enough that there are some sets of things that activate parasympathetic systems for most humans, 
right? So there's like average things like that, that we can start with. Then we also know that each of us is just a little bit different than the other ones. And what works for me might or might not work exactly the same thing for you. So really what I can do is I can give you starting points, but the most important thing I could teach from that is the, the need to experiment on yourself about that, but to experiment really consciously, really to be a scientist of yourself, right? So it's not just enough to say, okay, I'm going to breathe once. I'm going to take a deep breath when I'm under pressure. Okay, cool. That's like a great place to start, but that's actually not going to really get you much, right? What you really need to do is build, uh, is to create a loop of build, measure, learn, right? So apparently I love loops. I didn't realize this to where like sort of partway into this, but anyway, build, measure, learn loop, right? So build, you're going to, you're going to run an experiment and you're going to be really, really um, exact about what your hypothesis is. And it might be, and I might say to myself like, okay, Dan, you're going to feel that you're under pressure. And then you're going to take a particular pattern of breath, like a Maybe it's a physiologic sigh, two inhales, and then an exhale. Okay. Well, what's my measure? Well, I think the way I'll know if I succeeded or not is by talking to my nursing staff afterwards and saying, hey, did it look like I was in control of the room the way I wanted it to be? Or an internal signal might be, okay, how did I feel? Were my hands shaking or were my, you can't totally control that, but you can sort of diminish it a little bit, right? Or uh, did I feel smooth and slow when I was going through my motions of intubating? Um, and then the learn part is going to be reflecting on that afterwards and saying, all right, well, this was my experiment. This is what I thought would happen. Geez, what actually happened is uh, I didn't remember how to do that breath at all. And I don't actually have any idea if that helped me get better under pressure or not. Okay. Well, what experiment do I have to design next to really get me deeper into that space? Maybe what I actually need to do instead of breathing is actually go backward and work on that first thing, that signal of when to fire the experiment, right? And then you keep running that loop until you get to the point where you can actually test it and iterate on it. Um, that's sort of a sneaky answer because I didn't say anything about breathing in there. I really talked about building experiments. Uh, but if you really pin me down on breathing, um, I think other than box breathing and uh, and the physiologic sigh, um, the biggest thing I have learned about breathing is that it's not just those breaths, it's all the breaths you're taking, right? So that's, we talked about, there's like two breaths we just talked about, but what about the hundreds and other breaths that you're taking throughout the day? Are you really being conscious of slowing yourself down and setting yourself and your physiology up for success before you're in that exact moment? Um, so I, I didn't, I'd encourage you to think about those also, not just like the, the ultimate breaths that you're doing when you're trying to get a tube in. Something that I find really interesting, and I was actually talking to a friend about it today, is I think doing these things in other domains of life directly helps in a clinical setting as well. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking with a friend today about, you know, working out and then also about doing adventure type exercise, like adventure type things. So we mentioned CrossFit and I said, I think these things help me in CrossFit, but then we also mentioned um, jumping into, you know, open water. And my friend mentioned she was terrified. And I told her, I love that feeling when you, you have that adrenaline rush, but then you can calm yourself down. Mm. And that's almost like an, such an awesome feeling. And I think getting better at it outside of the hospital can directly help you in those situations when you're placed in them. Absolutely, man. I, I am, I, I will start this by saying I'm not a great surfer right? I, I live in California, but I'm not a great surfer, but I, I enjoy it. And there are definitely times because of my relative lack of skill where I am like, okay, this is a, I am feeling the stress and potentially danger of where I am doing right now. Um, and there's, uh, 
there's some evidence that I was reading lately, and I, I'm sorry, I don't off the top of my head remember where this was from, but they were talking about the difference between self-talk in first person and self-talk in third person or the second or third person. Yeah. The difference between saying, I am okay and saying you are okay to myself and how there's some evidence that the second and third person point of view of self-talk is actually more effective at separating yourself from the issue that you're feeling and creating the psychological space to really pivot and turn into it. Um, so I, I do this when I'm out surfing, when I'm, when I'm feeling a little bit stuck, right? Some version of like, okay, you're okay, Dan, like, like you are okay. And I found myself porting that over to, uh, emergency medicine situations as well. That same sort of idea, like, okay, you're okay. You're going to get this next one. Like, like things are all right. Um, and to me, that goes back to that idea of, can you run these experiments on yourself and see how it feels? Can you be conscious of the things you're trying and try to iterate around them? Also, yeah, I should I, learn to surf better. <laughs> I think I've also heard that as well about self-talk. I, I think the way I heard it framed was to try to talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. So instead of listening to the voice in your head, you, you, like you mentioned in the third person, you try to say, Caleb, I'm okay. Like talking to yourself, Caleb, I enjoy these experiences and I'm, you know, going to be able to get this under control and kind of a similar way that you mentioned. Yeah. There are definitely some experiences that, that I, cannot imagine telling myself, Dan, you will enjoy this experience, <laughs> but that's okay too. You don't have to enjoy it, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's true. Got to get through it either way. We talked a lot about individual strategies, but we want to transition to team dynamics. Now, how does the emergency mind project address leading teams in high stress environments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of our big things at the Emergency Mind Project is how do teams excel under pressure in these moments of crisis? Uh, I think it's worth taking a second to talk about two different types of teams, and that'll wedge us back into this idea of how do teams perform under pressure. And both of these teams occur naturally in the world of medicine. Um, it's not something that I paid a lot of attention to until I started thinking about teams kind of in general. Uh, but the more I apply this um, model to it, the easier it is to see them, and the more I realize how different they are and how we need to train for them differently. So um, we're talking here about solid teams versus liquid teams, right? And so a solid team is an intact team. It's a group that has selected together, trained together, performed together, um, and uh, then sets team goals about what they want to do. They have, they have an identity, right? So actually cardiothoracic surgery is a great example of that, right? So if you're in a transplant team, uh, you might be performing with that same group of people over potentially many years, right? You might handpick your team members, uh, your surgeons, your anesthetists you like to work with, your perfusionists, your everybody, and really create this coherent group that has a team identity. Collectively, you all are maybe the cardiac transplant team or something like that, right? Um, and that is a, a, a certain way that we act as a group. On the opposite end of the spectrum of that is something called a liquid team or sometimes a swarm team. And this is a group that comes together ad hoc to serve a particular mission. Maybe they've never met each other before. They all have some roles and some training. They come together on a particular location to do a job, to solve a problem set. And then usually they disband and go back to the environments they previously came from. They might never talk about it. They might never debrief from it. They might never see each other again. So the medicine version of this is what usually what happens when you hit the code blue alarm in a hospital. Right at that moment, um, you get a bunch of people that swarm to that location, and 
Maybe that's whatever three nurses were nearby. Maybe that's an ER doctor from the emergency department who sprints upstairs to run a code. Maybe it's a passing anesthesiologist who's just like, I can help with this, right? Like you never really know. And those people may have never worked together before. They might not even know who each other are. And since we all tend to dress the same, we have no idea who we are when we went in the room. And there's this moment of like sort of chaos that happens there that you have to organize. So both of these sets of teams are things that we deal with under pressure. Um, and you could imagine just from that description, how different it is to succeed at running each of those teams, either from the leader point of view or the follower point of view, the team member point of view. Um, so I think a first step is asking, well, what kind of teams am I a part of, right? What, what teams do I actually serve on? And chances are you might serve on more than one of these. You might be on an intact team and then a liquid team. You might have a, something in the middle. You might have things that some days behave like intact teams and sometimes behave like liquid teams. Um, and, and trying to be really conscious about that because the tools that work in one don't necessarily work in the other. Across the board, right? There are some common there are some common threads about performance under pressure, right? Which which teach us things like communication in the moments of emergency is one of the strongest skill sets we can have, right? This is one of the the most important things we can rely on, arguably more important than a lot of the actual medical. Um, we had a cardiac arrest case last night uh, in the ER where I was working, and it was very unexpected. Um, sometimes you have the luxury of sort of seeing one of these things uh, uh, a little bit around the corner, right? You can sort of tell, hey, something bad's about to happen and you can organize some thoughts around it. And this was not one of those times. This was somebody that just went into arrest sort of right in front of us. And they happened to have arrested in a space where we didn't have most of our tools available. There wasn't suction. There wasn't oxygen. There wasn't a crash cart. There wasn't any of these things. And so we had to move from uh, nothing to a liquid team to uh, basically a solid team over the course of a you know two rounds worth of CPR and transition the patient from one room to to another. And so much of that relies on communication. Now we're taught some of that, right? We're taught like closed loop communication, right? We all we were taught that at some point in medical school, but, but the idea of actually applying that under pressure is really different. So one of the things we work a ton on is uh, how to direct the room in spaces where you're walking into one of these liquid teams, stuff like that. Gotcha. Do you use the same arc that perform prepare, perform, recover, evolve with your teams as well? Yeah, if we can, right? Um, sometimes uh, the only way we get to run that arc is by ourselves, right? We prepare. So it, there's certain circumstances where I know I'm going to be the one who's going to be called upstairs to run a code blue. Okay, well, that's on me to sort of do that version of prepare, perform, recover, evolve. Um, but sometimes we get a moment with the team together to try to set up what happens, right? So um, in the ER, we might get a, a 911 call in that there's a person in really severe asthma coming in, really severe asthmatic attack coming in, and we're likely going to have to intubate. Okay, so we can organize the team around that mission, right? And usually that's literally standing up and saying, folks, we have a you know, person with severe asthma coming in, we're expecting an intubation. We know that it's harder to intubate asthmatics and that the danger period might be right after we intubate this person. So our preparation is going to be this. You're going to take the tube. I'm going to run the physiology. You're going to be backup. And we're not going to leave the room until two minutes after we intubate. And we're going to sort of debrief afterwards. Everybody okay with that? Or actually a better way to ask that is honestly, does anybody see a problem with that? 
right? Because you want to create the space for people to answer you in the negative, which sort of counteracts the hierarchy of saying like, we all good. It's a lot harder to say no to that than like yeah. who disagrees with me. Right. Right. Let's look at the solid team as a leader. How do you build an emergency mind focused team that's able to perform in stressful situations? One really important answer to that is uh, sort of what is um, is encouraging a culture of growth and learning from everybody on the team, right? Is saying that even though I might be leading the team, it does not mean that I am a perfect, fully formed product, right? I thought that sometimes when I was a medical student that I'd look at my attendings and be like, oh my God, these people know everything about everything. Um, sometimes because they would tell you, I know everything about everything. <laughs> you don't. Thankfully, we don't, we don't really do that anymore. But the, the opposite of that is actually much more powerful, right? The idea that everybody on the team learns, everybody on the team grows, and there will be the expectation as part of our sort of cultural norms around this, that we're going to run this emergency together. And afterwards, we are going to debrief, and then we're going to learn, and we're going to do better tomorrow than what we do today. And that expectation sets the tone of what we do. So right away, people know, okay, it's okay to not know everything. It's okay to try things. We're going to communicate about it. I expect that there will be a, a replay and a debrief afterwards. And I expect that I will find some way to get better at this tomorrow than I am today. And that sort of sets the stage for all of it. Um, the other answer uh, is that a lot of what we do to run a team that's successful under pressure happens when we're not under pressure. Right? It happens in the little moments in between things. It's how you communicate and set that cultural tone outside of the crisis. When you enter into that liminal space, right? when you enter into that emergency, when somebody's anesthetized and you're putting a breathing tube, the only thing you have there is what you've trained ahead of time. So it's up to you to build that team ahead of time when you're off pressure, when you're off the X, so that it's able to perform under pressure. One of the things that involves is making sure that people feel listened to and able to communicate to each other in a free and open way, right? So I always encourage, so when I'm leading a team, I always want everybody else who's around me to be asking questions about things that they don't understand because I want them to feel free to speak up and, and raise points that I might not see. I try to remind them of the fact that I only have one viewpoint in the room and the room is stronger than I am. And so if there's a question of, hey, Dan, why are we doing this? Phenomenal. That's a signal to me that I'm succeeding as a leader, creating an emergency mind-focused, high-pressure, resilient team is when people ask me questions about why we're doing stuff, because that gives me an opportunity to explain and consider alternate viewpoints and really cement those bonds of culture between all of us. So after that moment, after that stressful situation, walk me through a successful debrief. What does it look mm. like and how, are, how as a leader can you run a successful debrief so that everybody can improve for that next time? So I'll start by saying that there are some truly brilliant people that study this as their whole career, right? Like they study how to run a successful debrief. Um, and uh, Victoria Brazel, Eve Purdy, um, Shannon McNamara, some of these folks that are just brilliant at this in the emergency medicine space. And I'm not those people. And I, I defer and like definitely, you know, my hat goes off to them for the work that they've done. Um, and they've really influenced the way that I do this as well. W one of the things that I do, uh, which actually comes from uh, nobody on that list, but from Annie Duke, who is a world champion poker player and decision analyst, uh, and now, uh, I think a PhD in decision science at this point, um, She's, she taught me this, and this is probably the core of my initial debrief of stuff. And this occurs to me whether we're doing a hot wash, like an immediate 
post-action debrief, like a debrief later on that shift or like an M&M style, like full formal root cause analysis sort of thing, uh, which is to separate the idea of performance and outcome, right? So outcome is what happened to the patient or to the technique or to whatever. And performance is what do I control that I have any ability to act on? How did I perform based on the level of what I'm capable of doing? I think separating those allows us uh, to really get at some of the deeper questions about what happened, both in terms of actually what happened, like what medicines were given, what things went on, and also what does that feel like to me as somebody who's growing and learning to perform under pressure, right? Because you can get in a situation, especially in medicine, where you can perform well and there's still a bad outcome, right? We don't control everything. We don't get to decide who lives and dies. We do get to decide how we perform. You can also get in a situation where you were very lucky and there is a great outcome despite a real challenge or a real subpar or suboptimal performance. And both of those things need to be learned from, right? In fact, if you imagine a two by two matrix with performance and outcome, right? Good, bad, good, bad. All four of those quadrants need to be learned from. And so the biggest thing underlying any type of a debrief that we do on a team like this is the ethos of never wasting suffering, right? We don't waste our suffering and we don't waste our patients' suffering. Whatever happens, we commit to finding our space on that two-by-two matrix and learning from it. And so often we'll start a debrief by formally drawing out a two-by-two matrix on a piece of paper and being like, all right, what was that? Where were we? And the answer is different for every person, right? Somebody might have done a really good job placing a line and that line was very successful, even if the overall code or whatever wasn't particularly successful. And so it allows you to have that fractal nature and to sort of find pieces that are, are more or less uh, good or bad, or that need different types of, of, of follow-up from them. I think it's so interesting. The more I study and the more I read, the more importance I find in the idea of trying to separate the world into things you control and things you don't control and yeah. trying to focus all your efforts into the things you do control and trying to spend as little time thinking and focusing on the things you can't control. Is this another great example of that and the things that you were talking about? Absolutely. I would totally encourage you uh, to try actually drawing out that matrix on a piece of paper and looking at it to and like all standing around a table, looking at that piece of paper. We, we found that has a lot of use for uh, folks, no matter what position they are in, in the circumstance to sort of get a sense of like, all oh, right, I need to like actually go through this and, and sort through it. And you can even subset out like, okay, we're going to make one for the whole thing. We're going to make one for the teamwork and communication. We're going to make one for the intubation phase of what happened and really drilling into each of those spaces like that. It's a good way to start the conversation. That's an awesome practical tool. What are some other practical ideas that people can adapt to their emergency rooms or to their teams that deal with high stress environments? I think one of the most important things uh, that I've gotten from all of these amazing folks I work with is the idea of harnessing the wisdom of the room around you, right? So you're in the middle of a, a bad circumstance, something's going south in surgery, or there's a, a cardiac arrest and you're partway through and you're just not really sure what to do next, right? The actual idea of saying, okay, what else are we doing here is a really important thing. Now, we all have some way to do that. And sometimes that's just looking around helplessly, right? And sometimes that's actually asking something to galvanize the team. But the, the actual concrete thing that I would suggest is that you change the wording of that sentence that you say. 
Uh, and in, we, we alluded to this earlier about the power dynamic, but medicine has this huge hierarchy to it. And there's definitely a, a resistance to speaking up with alternative ideas, um, especially if the person asking for information is the highest person on the pyramid of one sort or another. Right. So I have this very visceral memory of being, I think I was a second year medical student or maybe a third year medical student. I was shadowing somebody and watching in a cath lab. And I watched the wire break the sterile field and touch something that it shouldn't. And for whatever reason, I was the only person that saw that from my vantage point or whatever. And I remember having this actual like mini existential crisis about like, okay, I know this is wrong, but I don't know if I can say, say anything about this because I'm just the medical student, right? There's such this huge power dynamic that I didn't know if I could say it. And so I, I solved the problem by you know, finding whoever the senior medical student was and like, you know, tugging on their shoulder and being like, that's wrong. And then thankfully the message got up and like no harm came to the patient, but like, that's kind of ridiculous that I had that, right? Like that, that shouldn't be like that. We should have a system where we can pass this crucial information. Anyway, that, that's a soapbox. So, okay. What are you going to do? That's an actual tool that you can change. Well, what I would encourage you to do is ask for dissent, not ask for, okay. Right. So instead of saying, I'm going to do this, everybody good, say some version of, I need you all to see what I don't see. Who sees a mistake I'm making, right? Or another way to do this is when I'm setting up to do a timeout to start a procedure, I will ask, does anybody see something that makes this unsafe? Who sees a reason we should stop? And then I look around the room and I look in everybody's eyes and I make sure I have everybody's eyes that say, no, I don't see a reason to stop. Bit of a double negative. I have found asking the question like that breaks down some of that power hierarchy and allows me to harness better information from my team. Um, and I've had a great set of conversations that have come out of that, right? Folks being like, you know, I don't know if we should stop, but I don't understand why this is like that. Phenomenal. That's a great opportunity to either be like, you know what? You're right. Let's put a pause on that and fix that suction or like, mm, amazing. We'll talk about it afterwards, but we're okay to go. It's also super easy. Like it tastes nothing to make that change. Yeah. It, wording is just so powerful. One of my attendings uh, during third year taught me, and it's always stuck with me to ask patients after you are about to leave the room and you finish talking to them, instead of asking, do you have any questions? Ask them, what questions do you have? And mm -hmm. it's just so much more, um, it's easier for them to come up with questions when it's framed that way, instead of yes or no, I have questions you know, what questions do you have? And then they're more willing to share what they're thinking or what they don't understand. It's, it's just sounds very similar to the team dynamic that you're explaining mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Being really conscious of the way that we uh, communicate those edges. And also like everything that we're talking about becomes harder when you do it under pressure, right? When you are in the middle of a crisis, like it's very hard to remember the minute details about how you're supposed to say a particular sentence, especially if you haven't trained it. And so the other thing that you really have to do is practice this stuff when you're outside of pressure and slowly introduce it in pressure, right? Slowly introduce it. Do it in a medium pressure case. Do it in a scenario where things are a little bit tense, but they're not full bore crazy. And then practice it and be like, yeah, you know, okay, that feels good. I, I think I can try it the next thing. Or like, no, 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 I'm going to try a different set of wording for it. But don't jump from zero to chaos if you can avoid it. Try to put a step in between. As we're wrapping up here, Caleb and I always like to ask, what are some pieces of advice you have for future medical leaders, especially in managing stressful situations? 
Um, I think, uh, especially when we consider leadership positions for teams that perform under pressure, right, which is a subset of all teams, and assuming that's the type of team that you want to be a part of, uh, first off, understanding what you do and don't have control over is critically important, like what you said. Starting to study yourself and really study your own reaction under pressure, and then start to talk about it. Make the implicit, explicit about that among the teams that you're already on, right? Ask your senior folks on the team where you're a junior member, hey, how do you handle pressure now differently than you did when you start? And what are you working on? How are you working on that? And ask for those feedback loops to start happening about it. Try to make some of your internal experiments more external and more obvious. It's a little scary when you start, right? Because we're, we're supposed to project this image like we really know what's going on. But the more we are able to really vocalize, hey, we're practicing this skill, just like you practice the skill of tying knots or doing an effective abdominal exam, right? Like this is a skill that we need to practice. And the more conversations we have about it, the easier that's going to be. Um, I also think that when you are a member of a really highly functioning team, you know, you just, you know it, you feel it, you feel really good. You feel like that team's really working. Talk about that. Ask questions about that. Talk to them about how they would redesign that team and reproduce it. What are some laws of teamwork that the people who are running that seem to have to be able to offer and study it as its own thing, separate from, again, the medical knowledge that you're trying to learn. There's only so many hours in a day. That's a bit of a tall order sometimes, right? So the shortcut question for me is always some version of what basic like structural component thing do you do differently now than when you were at my stage and why? That tends to be a really good wedge into a lot of really deep learning. And can I, can I really quickly turn this back on you and ask you that question? So what is something now that you feel yeah. like you've really worked on and improved from when you were training in medical school or residency? I am so, so much more cognizant of the other parts of the cycle that aren't perform. So much more important than I thought they were. I spend a lot of time thinking about how I prepare to do a thing and how I successfully recover back into my average state after that thing. And that's a fractal idea, right? That's true, whether or not I'm intubating, whether we're running a code, whether we are uh, running a shift. And I think about how that relates to sort of coming back to my own normal life. Uh, I just did not at all understand how important that was. Um, and I wish that I had had, I wish that I'd been introduced to that concept earlier. It probably would have saved me an enormous amount of significant problems in, in my life and in my work. Um, and I'm grateful for the chance to now sort of tackle some of those other components. Um, I think the culture of medicine has a long way to go about uh, things that aren't perform. Um, and hopefully uh, conversations like this are part of our way that we're getting there. Thanks so much for sharing that. The last question Peter and I like to ask, we both love to read and think reading is super important for learning about leadership. And so are there any books that you found really influential in your life and your uh, improvement in your leadership journey or in this journey that we talked about today? Absolutely, man. I, I, so first off, from any sort of a medical perspective, like if you're in medicine, I, like you need 
to really, really study how we think and make decisions. And I'm sure that what I'm about to say, like I'm sure lots of people have recommended uh, thinking fast and slow on this podcast before to think about sort of like the cognitive bias approach. But I'm also going to re- recommend sort of what is a philosophical opposite to that, which is Sources of Power by Gary Klein. Um, and in a way, Klein talks about how people who are experts make decisions about things they are an expert in. Uh, and what I'd really recommend is a paper that the two of them both wrote together, Kahneman and Klein wrote together, called A Failure to Disagree. And in that, they really set out some of the details of the two different theories of decision-making, how humans make decisions, and some of the boundaries in which one uh, sort of um, model is more dominant than the other. That blew me away. Uh, I'm not sure that I would have been totally ready to really understand it when I was just starting, but I think that partway through your sort of training, you definitely should read that because you have to be honest with yourself about whether or not you're functioning like a novice or you're functioning like an expert in a particular part of medicine. Um, I'd also recommend, uh, ghosts of the fire ground. Um, and I'm blanking on the author that I think it's Lashak. But Ghost to the Fireground is this um, incredible book about uh, wildland firefighters sort of engaging on uh, an attack of a fire. And it is, aside from being like incredibly interesting to read, uh, uh, it captures things about what it feels like to lead a team into complicated, potentially dangerous circumstances. And it captures it in a way that I've never seen anything captured before. And I read that book and remember thinking to myself, wow, this are, these are thoughts I've had to myself when I come home from leading teams in the emergency department. And I've never heard anybody else say this out loud. Um, again, that might be one that's a little bit better as you're a little bit farther along, as you're starting to lead a little bit more, but there's so much, so much like beauty in that book. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll have to read that article tonight. It sounds super interesting. It's super and cool. Check out some of those books. Thank you so much. This was this was definitely so much fun for me. Um, a lot of the things that we talked about are things I like to geek out about. And performance-wise, I just find it so interesting. So thanks so much for spending time and talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you for what you all are building. And I'm, I'm honored to be a really tiny part of it. Thanks. Really enjoyed having you on.